Christ City Church, happy Easter. Yo, it is a joy to be able to say that uh, in person for the first time in three years. Uh, he is risen. Uh, my name is Matthew Watson. I serve as the pastor of teaching and outreach here at Christ City, and, and I want to lend my voice to the voice of those that have welcomed you here. Uh, it is a joy and an honor to celebrate. Uh, we welcome you. We uh, are delighted that you're here to worship with us and to celebrate with us the eternal truth that Jesus is resurrected. Uh, we are here because the Lord is here. We're here to worship because the Lord is worthy of our worship and our attention and our affections. And the Lord is worthy of all of those things because he is the one who has defeated death and all of death's children and death's hold on us through his one great act on the cross and in the resurrection. And I'm excited to be with you. I'm humbled after such a long stretch of pandemic-induced distance to be able to share in this resurrection celebration together and in person. So he is risen. Also, look, listen, I also want to recognize that there are folks that continue to join us uh, via our live stream. Uh, I see y'all, you might be experiencing a bit of FOMO, fear of missing out. Uh, but listen, what I want you to know is that I'm glad that you're here. Uh, you are missed, uh, but you're not forgotten. And so to you, I say to you, he is risen. And invite you to type in, all caps, he's risen indeed, in the chats. We are glad that all of you are here with us, dear saints. A couple of weeks ago, I was listening to a podcast, uh, This American Life, longtime listener to that one. And uh, they were telling stories of people who felt compelled to step in and just do something. Uh, they saw a need, they believed that they had, uh, you know, they believed themselves to be uniquely equipped to address that need. And one of the stories was about a man in Seattle who had figured out how to track down stolen bicycles. Now, uh, you know, this caught my attention because on more than one occasion, I found myself driving around, kind of scouring Capitol Hill on the lookout for a bicycle that has become wayward, uh, either my kids or their friends. Um, Thomas, I see you. We've driven around looking for your bike. Hey, yo, my guy. Um, and, uh, you know, and honestly, I got to tell you, my recovery rate is not 0%. It's a little bit better than that. So when I hear this story, like, I, you know, I'm, I'm interested. Um, in the story, there's a physical therapist. Her name is Carrie, and she has her bike stolen. Now, obviously, it's a frustrating situation. I mean, it's not the end of the world, but, you know, just it's, it's not, you know, not good nonetheless. And so she's mad, and she's sad, and she's disappointed, and she's frustrated. She's, you know, kind of all the things. And a day later, she gets this weird text from an unknown number asking if she's had her bike stolen. Uh, she's super weirded out by this. She's thinking, what sort of scam is this? What's going on? Who is this texting me? And then a few minutes later, she gets a second text from the same number. And the message is, hey, I think I found your bike uh, listed on Craigslist. Now, the message is from a guy named Dirk. Dirk's the hero in the story. And he explains that he was looking for a bike for his wife on Craigslist. And he came across this listing that, looks really, that looked really kind of shady. Uh, the picture of the bike was a little bit blurry. It was at night. And the bike was listed for way less than it was worth. So it piques Dirk's interest. In Seattle, they have a bike registry where you can register your bike via the serial number, and then you can also alert folks if it's stolen. Maybe DC has one. I don't know. I didn't do that sort of research for this message. It's beside the point. 
So Xerxes carries bike on the registration, notices that she's reported it missing, and then he finds a bike matching that description on Craigslist. Now, to make a long story short, Dirk messages the sellers, uh, and he says, hey, I'm interested in the bike. Uh, he meets the guys, looks the bike over, looks at the serial number, and then sort of just, he doesn't really have a solid plan, just kind of looks at him and is like, hey, I'm not saying y'all stole the bike, but the bike's stolen. I'm just going to take it, okay? And they're like, all right, cool. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> So, um, and it's not that Dirk is like some giant hulking guy. Like, he's kind of a bit lanky, actually. Um, and so he gets the bike. He returns it to Carrie. She's elated. It's still a little weird, weirded out. Uh, for one day, like, she's out of, you know, she doesn't have a bike. The next day, she gets a weird text message. And then that night, she's got her bike back. It's just sort of a weird turn of events. For Dirk, turns out, like, this is something that he just does. He's like recovered, he recovered like over 20 bikes, just scours Craigslist, looks at the Seattle bike registry, and then they start calling him the bike Batman. Uh, you know, he, and the process is always the same. He like meets the guy, he says, look, I'm not saying you stole it, but it's stolen, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna take this, all right, cool. Sometimes they just like run away, other times they're like, all right, whatever, and then, they, and then that's it. And each, you know, and, and folks, they keep asking Dirk, like, why are you doing this, like, the cops are asking him, citizens are asking him, like, why are you doing The journalists are asking him. And the only answer he can muster is that he figured out how to do something that others hadn't, and he couldn't not do that thing. And it turns out Dirk is like, he's just kind of that kind of guy that's, you know, nice and weird. He stops, he helps people on the side of the road when they have flats. He like picks up hitchhikers, I guess, I don't know. Like he helps out where he can. And it's completely weird every time he does it because it's just completely weird. Who does that? The journalist reporting, Sean Cole, he uh, noted, of course the whole thing seems weird, unless you're Dirk. Because it seems a lot less weird to him. From his perspective, he figured out how to solve this problem, find stolen bikes. And once he figured it out, he couldn't not solve it. Because no one else was doing it. He was like, somebody's got to do it. And what caught me as Cole goes on to reflect, he says, I actually can't think of a better way to spend your time on this planet than to identify something that's vexing, that's vexing someone else or a lot of someone's else and to put yourself in that gap between them and the solution. I can't think of a better way to spend your time on this planet than to identify a problem that's vexing a whole lot of other people and then to put yourself in the gap between them and that solution. Easter is the ultimate celebration of the ultimate one who placed themselves between the ultimate of vexing problems, the problem of sin and of death, and the solution of forgiveness and life. Easter is the climax of that story, the story of something that was lost, not a bicycle or a Schwinn, but something that was deeper and much more valuable, that a sense of self and worth and a sense of identity and dignity that had been lost. And Easter is the story of something being returned, a return of honor and of healing and restoration and reconciliation. It's the story of a return of justice and righteousness yeah. and mercy and above all love. Yeah. Yeah. Easter, and in the Easter story, we see this movement from death to life, from despair to hope, from sorrow to joy. In Luke 24, we have these two scenes following the resurrection. 
The first scene is of women, their journey to the tomb and back again. The second scene is of these men on their way to Emmaus and back again. And in both scenes, they open in the fog of death and of sorrow. Chapter 24, verse 1, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and they went to the tomb. The chapter and scene opens with on the first day of the week. This would have been on a Sunday, which is why Christians throughout the ages worship on Sundays as a weekly reminder that it was on this day, the first day of the week, that Jesus was resurrected. The women headed to the tomb, and later in the chapter, the women are named. Scripture tells us it was Mary Magdalene, it was Joanna, and then Mary, the mother of James. And there are other women, though they are not named, they had spices with them. The spices they carried, they were burial spices. It's not like, you know, like seasonings for like your mom's curry or whatever. Like that's not what it is. It's they were spices meant to be placed on a body whose life had been extinguished. Most likely the spices were myrrh. Same spice brought to Jesus by the Magi upon his birth. Prior to Jesus' burial, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they anointed Jesus' body with spices. The women wanted to do a more thorough job, it seems, now that the Sabbath restrictions were lifted in the dawn of Sunday. Of course, there was this matter of the stone in front of the tomb, but perhaps they hoped that the soldiers would help them move it or something. We're not sure. The truth is, is that grief doesn't always allow you to think clearly. They just knew that Jesus was dead. So early in the morning, they head out in the haze of pre-dawn looking for a lifeless body, believing that there was no way that Jesus could live again. On that same day, two men, one named Cleopas, they're traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus, a journey of about seven miles or the distance from here to American University on foot. As they walk, they are shrouded in disappointment and sadness in the wake of Jesus' death Luke records their countenance in verse 17, noting that their faces were downcast. They were dejected. They were, they were defeated. And you could see it in their posture. You could see it in their gait. You could see it in their disposition. They, these were men who had lost it all. And they wore that loss like a cloak. Jesus actually meets them on the road, though they don't know it. And he asks them, why are you so sad? The men look at Jesus like he's a loon, and they're like, are you the only person that doesn't know what's taking place in Jerusalem this weekend? But they entertain his question. Verse 19, what things, he, Jesus, asks? About Jesus, they reply. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests of our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. Cleopas and company, they recount the horror of the weekend's events, and they come to the saddest line, one of the saddest lines in the Bible for me, Luke 24, 21, but we had hoped, and he was the one who's going to redeem all of this. And what's more, it's been the third day since all this took place. But we had hoped uh, every time. Every time it gets me, that, that feeling, I know that feeling, the feeling of a, of a hope dashed, of possibilities unrealized, of, of doors to an imagined future closing. We had hoped. Yeah. 
I suspect there are some things that you have had to bury the last season since we gathered in person on an Easter, is there not? A hope or two? Things that have felt stolen from us in the mire of pandemic and life. Opportunities and careers and hobbies and financial futures and relationships and even loved ones. Things and people that at this point we might say we had hoped it was going to be different. I, um, I had a plant die recently. I, thank you. I appreciate that. I realize, you know, it's kind of a small thing given so much that so many have lost this season and this season of suffering that we've all been walking through. But the truth is the plant meant a lot to me. All right, I like plants. I can't tell you that I fancy myself a plant guy, but this one was particularly special to me. It was a peace lily. You know what a peace lily, a peace plant is? No, not sure. It's all right. It's green. I'm sure that helps you. Um, <laughs> kind of leafy. <laughs> you, you, you're imagining it now? Good, perfect. Um, often has a white flower that sprouts through the top of it. Mine never flowered. Uh, they're quite popular because uh, they're an attractive plant, they're easy to care for, and actually, I just discovered this, according to NASA, you can be impressed, and they are, uh, as an indoor plant, they are especially adept at cleaning the air. Typically, peace lilies live three to five years. I had mine nine and a half. You see, I got it at my dad's funeral. Somebody sent it to the funeral home, and afterwards, when we were divvying up the plants, I took that one. Left Dallas with it, carried it with me to Memphis, where we were living at the time. And then when we moved to D.C. nine years ago, man, I brought that joker with me. Last winter, started to get sick, tried a few things, researched a bunch of stuff, you know, kind of went double time on the care of it, but it just kind of hung limp for a long time. Some of you were over at the house. You're like, man, why is this floppy plant over here? It just hung there like for two months. And, you know, I hoped it would spring back, but it never did. And that was that. This, This constant reminder of my dad stood in the corner of my house and in the corner of my mind for nearly a decade, now it's gone. I know it's just a plan, but it wasn't, was it? There's probably a number of things you've hoped had gone differently in your life in this recent season. Some things that you've had to lay to rest with tears and sadness, but... Uh, But on the way to the tomb, and on the way to Emmaus, a word comes, a message that death didn't have the last word, and things that are laid to rest, they can, in fact, live again. On the way to the tomb, Mary, Mary, and Joanna, and the other women, they encounter a messenger who tells them that Jesus isn't in the tomb. The women hear this message, but they don't understand like the words coming out of the messenger's mouth. The message is an angel after all. But still, like there wasn't a category for Jesus being alive again. So it's like a, like a first century version of like a 404 error message. The women can't understand. They're like, what are you saying? What are you talking about? So the angel tells them, remember, 
Remember this other message. Remember the things that Jesus had already told them about this very moment. Verse 6, remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. The message that the angel tells them is that, one, Jesus is alive. Death doesn't have the last word. That things buried, they don't remain buried. Life can live again. And two, remember that Jesus said that. Remember how he told you. The angel, the messenger, simply told the women to recount the trustworthy words of Jesus. Church, what was the last clear word you received from the Lord about your life or about your future or about your hopes or his promises toward you? In the chaos and the uncertainty of sorrow, it's always a good practice to return to the last clear word from the Lord. The messenger says, remember how he told you. Unsurprisingly, Jesus actually says this same thing to Cleo and his companions. On the road, Jesus meets them in the midst of their downcast stare, and he says to them essentially, remember what the scripture said about this moment. Remember what Moses, the prophets, and our poets in the Psalms, and our historians chronicling the history of God's redemption in our collective lives. Remember all of that? Jesus frustratedly a bit perhaps says, don't you remember that the prophets and what Moses, what they said would happen? Remember what God said to us in his word, verse 26. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all of Scripture concerning himself. Jesus is reminding them all of the ways that God has met them in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death and provided for them. Jesus reminded them of all the times they stood on the banks of a great sea with their enemies at their back and parted the water so that they could pass through into freedom. Jesus reminded them of all the times that they found themselves in a fiery furnace or in a den of lions only to return untouched. Jesus reminded them of all the times that they conquered giants in the land with nothing but faith and rocks. Jesus said to those on the road to Emmaus that all of that, all of those stories, all of those miracles, it was leading to him, pointing to him. And that very moment, in that very moment, they would, he would face down the biggest sea, the biggest enemy, the biggest furnace, the most ferocious of lions, the fiercest of giants, and he would come out victorious. And there would be no death. There would be a death, but there would be a resurrection. There would be life again. Forty days ago, we began this Lenten journey on Ash Wednesday, and during our Ash Wednesday service, I told a story about a burned patch of ground in my backyard. It was a place where I roasted a pig for Noche Buena, a Christmas Eve celebration that our family hosts. And in the aftermath of that celebration, there was only ash and dust and char. Grass was burned and scorched all around. There was still some burned wood and leftover charcoal on the ground. As a burned out remembrance that a fire once was once there. And on that Ash Wednesday service, I shared my hope that in the spring or summer maybe that grass would regrow and maybe some flowers or dandelions perhaps. This week, I noticed the first signs of that hope. Right in the very, like, dead middle center of that scorched square, 
a fluff of grass right in the middle. Like as, as if to protest the ashes and to remind me again that what was lost in the fire can be found in the ashes and that we too can in fact live again. The message to the women on the way to the tomb and the men on the way to Emmaus and to us is that Jesus can and does live again. And so can you. What Easter says to us is that you can live again, that your hopes and your dreams can live again, that the things that you believed to have been buried and lost, they can live again. That's that what you have lost in the fog of uncertainty can find life again, that your finances, your relationships, that whatever has been lost because of Jesus, it can be found again in him and you can live again. Death and all of death's children, they do not have the last word. Rejection doesn't have the last word. Lies don't have the final word. Setbacks and missteps do not dictate our direction. If Easter reminds us of anything, it is that Jesus has the last word in our lives. Because he lives, we too can live again in him. He offers us life. But church, not just for us personally, but also Jesus extends life to us communally and corporately. Jesus extends life to us all and all of us. Poverty doesn't have the last word. Injustice doesn't have the last word. Racial inequity doesn't have the last word. Substandard housing doesn't have the last word. Violence doesn't have the last word, church. We can live again. Our community can live again. It's why we demand affordable housing for our neighbors. It's why we work with our schools and nonprofit organizations to provide tutoring and mentoring. Because failing schools don't have the last word on the matter. It's why we serve and stand in solidarity with our mutual aid organizations because we are a people practicing resurrection that points to the day when everybody has everything they need and we do this because Jesus reminds us that we can live again saints just as the angel was a messenger to those sorrow-filled women on the way to the tomb reminding them that Christ was alive we are now the messengers to one another and to the world pointing each other towards the truth that we can live again and we have life in Christ through faith. And we are the messengers saying collectively through our prayers and our protests, through our witness and our testimony, that the cycles of death and oppression and bondage, they do not have the last word. And though some resurrections might take time, some resurrections may take more than a season or two, they may take a generation to show their living, we keep working, knowing that we serve a God of all time and all of life, and we know that we will live again, and that you can and you will live again. And the reason for this is because of what it says in Luke, verse 6 of chapter 24, he is not here. He is risen. If you'd allow me one more story about plants, got a theme going. Ten-year-old peace lily that died, I found out later that in the middle of our attempts to save it, Lisa pulled out a sprout. It's not much. And I know some of y'all that are plant people probably judge me because it's a little raggly on the edges. I'm a little raggly on the edges. 
And it's certainly not much compared to what it was and what it came from, but it sits in our windowsill so it can catch the sun just right. And it sits there to remind us all that life always overcomes death, even when it starts small. Church, Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. And because of that, we too have life, individually and communally. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this moment. I thank you for the chance that we have to celebrate the resurrection, to celebrate your life in us. God, I thank you for these reminders that you do and that you have overcome everything. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.